Well, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Joshua, continuing to make our way through this book together. And we have come to Joshua 14 this morning, and let's just begin by reading that chapter of Scripture together. Joshua 14, this is the word of the Lord. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun And the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these forty-five years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me, My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this hill country, of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let me pray briefly and ask his blessing upon it. Our Father, we just simply ask that you would take this passage of Scripture, this chapter in Joshua, that you would help us to understand it, that you would open its contents up to us to help us to know what it means and how it applies to our lives. And Father, we pray that you would do this by the illumination of the Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Being a Christian is not just believing a set of truths about Jesus. It's not even just about trusting 
in the person of Christ. Now, of course, those two things are vital. They are foundational. They describe the faith by which a person becomes a Christian. However, a Christian is also a person who precisely because he or she believes and trusts in Christ also follows him. A Christian could be described as a follower of Jesus, even as he called his disciples saying, come, follow me. And following Jesus involves submitting to, coming under his leadership. As Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A Christian is a learner, a disciple. He learns, she learns what Jesus has to teach and then obeys it in their life. You can see this, for instance, even in the Great Commission, so-called. Matthew 28, 18 through 19, where Jesus says that every disciple is to be taught to observe everything that Christ has commanded. So while a person becomes a Christian simply by believing and trusting in Christ, yet a Christian demonstrates their sincere faith and trust in Christ by following him in their life going forward. And a true Christian will persevere in following Christ all the way to the end. Now, of course, we should also say that the life of every true Christian will be marked by daily sins. Why? Because we still have corruption that remains in our soul all the way till we die. So James famously said, we all stumble in many ways. And many Christians will fail to follow Jesus in more serious and tragic ways. One thinks about how all of his disciples abandoned him on the night that he was arrested and how Peter denied even knowing him three times. And we continue to see people fail to follow Jesus as they should today. In fact, we need not look any farther than our own lives to see examples of disobedience to Christ for which we are ashamed and need forgiveness daily. We should also point out, however, that there have been Christians and are Christians today who have lived lives of remarkable fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. Oh, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, yet they have avoided the kinds of major failures that have tarnished the lives of so many Christians and maintained a record of remarkable obedience to Christ throughout their lives. You might say they have wholly followed the Lord. In this way, they provide an example for every Christian to admire and follow And Joshua 14 tells us of just such a person. Now, I know we need to be careful about simply moralizing the stories of the Old Testament. I would be the first one to tell you not to reduce the actions of Old Testament figures to either positive or negative moral examples. You know, be like David and Daniel and don't be like Saul or Nebuchadnezzar. You'll miss what's really going on in the Old Testament if you handle it in solely that fashion. But sometimes an author in the Old Testament is actually intending you to interpret a text that way. Sometimes, in other words, 
the author of Scripture is setting forth a particular figure as an example to learn from. And I want to argue that Joshua 14 is one of those places. Here the author is intentionally putting forward an Israelite who wholly followed the Lord as an example for his readers to follow in their lives. Let me show you what I mean by just simply taking you back through this chapter. Now, remember, last week we crossed over a major seam, if you will, in the book of Joshua. When we went from chapters 1 through 12, which tell us all about how Israel conquered the land of Canaan, into chapters 13 through 24, which tell us how the Lord divided up the land of Canaan between the tribes. And I also mentioned how when you get into this second part of the book, the actual division of the land takes place in chapters 13 through 21, while the last part of the book tells Israel how to live in the land that God had allotted to them as an inheritance. And if you focus on chapters 13 through 21, you see that the dividing up of the land takes place in four stages. First, the land east of the Jordan River is divided between two and a half tribes. Then, the land west of the Jordan River is divided up between nine and a half tribes. Well, then you get to chapter 20 and it talks about designating cities of refuge, and chapter 21 is all about giving the Levites their cities and pasture lands. Now, last Sunday, we looked at chapter 13, and today we're going to look at chapter 14. Now, this chapter marks the beginning of the process where that land of Canaan proper on the west side of the Jordan River is going to be divided up between nine and a half tribes of Israel. This is a process which begins here in chapter 14 and won't be finished until chapter 19. Now the first five verses of this chapter 14, they really serve as an introduction to the whole section, to this whole six chapter section where the land of Canaan is going to be divided up and apportioned out to nine and a half tribes of Israel. So you can even see in verse 1, it says, These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan. And the rest of that introductory part of the chapter, verses 1 through 5, the author really gives you details that are important for understanding how this division of the land was going to take place. So first he tells you who's in charge of it. So the rest of verse 1 says, Eleazar the priest, the high priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. They're going to be in charge of it. So Joshua is going to work with the high priest and with a respected chief from each of the tribes. And really, I think this is to ensure the credibility and accountability in this process. Second, the author tells us, how the land is actually going to be divided. Verse 2, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses. So think about it. The decision of who got what part of the land, that was going to be decided by casting lots. Now, casting lots was a particular way that God had established for Israel to directly discern his will on particular matters. 
they would pose questions to God, they would cast lots, and then God would reveal the answer to the question by determining how the lot would fall. Now, that, you can see, would hopefully limit any discontentment or suspicion over who got what land and would ensure that everyone would know it's God determining this, not any human being. Third, the author explained why the land would be divided up between nine and a half tribes, as he said at the end of verse 2. So first, he explained why Canaan was being divided up between nine and a half tribes and not twelve tribes. And in verse 3, he says, For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan. You see, in other words, the land of Canaan, west of the Jordan, was going to be divided between nine and a half tribes because, as we saw in the last chapter, two and a half of the tribes had already inherited land on the other side of the Jordan. But then he explained why Canaan was being divided between nine and a half tribes and not 13 tribes. After all, he mentions Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, actually had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who essentially became their own tribes. Each of them received a full tribal inheritance. As God told Joseph, his, he would receive a double portion in the land. But then you start counting it up and you realize, okay, well, if Joseph is turned into two tribes, then that makes 13 tribes, not 12. So why isn't the land divided between 13? You have nine and a half and two and a half. That makes 12. Why not 13? And, and that's what he explains. He says that the tribe of Levi would not be given a portion of the land as an inheritance. They would just be given cities and pasture lands. And we already saw the reason for this in the last chapter, that the Lord himself would be the inheritance for the tribe of Levi that they would actually receive portions from the sacrifices and offerings brought to the Lord at the tabernacle and then the temple. Now, with those introductory comments out of the way in verses 1 through 5, the author then starts with his account of the division of the land of Canaan between the nine and a half tribes. Now, the description of this process is in chapters 14 through 19, and it's going to include, um, so to speak, a lot of lists and maps. The author is going to describe all the territories using landmarks, and then he's going to enumerate the cities in those territories. But you notice that in our chapter, he doesn't launch into that right away. Instead, what we see here in chapter 14 is that he starts with the account of of the territory in Canaan that was going to be given to a single individual. In fact, it's very interesting that this entire section, chapters 14 through 19, where the land of Canaan is divided up and apportioned out to the nine and a half tribes, actually begins and ends with the account of the inheritance given to one individual. It starts here with the account of the portion in Canaan given to the man Caleb, and it ends with the portion given to the man Joshua. Now you might ask, why these two? What was so special about them? Well, 
if you start thinking about your Israelite history, you remember that these are the only two people left from the original generation of adult Israelites who had come out of Egypt at the Exodus. The Lord had spared them from perishing during that 40-year wilderness wandering period and allowed them now to enter into the promised land. Why? Because they were the only two spies out of the 12 spies who had given a good report to Israel and encouraged them to take the land way back in that event that happened in Numbers 13 through 14 at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Now, the striking nature of that is surely one of the reasons why the author included the accounts of their two individual inheritances into the narrative. But it's also clearly more than that, I think. That Joshua and especially Caleb here are being put forward at the beginning and the end of this account of dividing up the land by the author as examples for the Israelite readers through the centuries of how to live before God in a way that would lead them to be able to enjoy this inheritance that God was giving to them in Canaan. And I think this will become more clear as the passage unfolds here. So the scene is set in verse 6. And there it says, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, Now let's just stop there for a moment. At some point, representatives of the tribe of Judah approached Joshua, where he was camped, at that initial camp, at the place called Gilgal, not far from Jericho. And they came, these representatives of Judah, with the man Caleb, who obviously was a very prominent member of the tribe at that point. He's described as Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, so that you, the reader, would know that this is the same Caleb who had been one of the 12 men sent by Moses to spy out the promised land back in Numbers 13 and 14. Now, this introduction is followed then by an extended citation of what Caleb said to Joshua at this meeting in Gilgal. And we see that verses 6 through 12, most of the rest of the chapter, form his, what he said. Now, Caleb began by reminding Joshua of his part, Caleb's part, in the matter of the 12 spies sent out by Moses that is recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. He said to Joshua there in our text, verses 6 through 9, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. Now here we see that Caleb reminded Joshua that he was one of the only spies who had been faithful to the Lord in his report to the people. He had believed that God would indeed give Israel the land that he had spied out just as he had promised. And so he encouraged the people, go up 
and take possession of the land. While the other spies did not believe that God would give them the land as he had promised, and they discouraged the people from going up. They suggested it would be too hard. You're just going to die if you go up and try to take that land. Now, I say that Caleb was reminding Joshua of these things because obviously Joshua knew these things very well. He had been there. He was one of the 12 spies too. In fact, he was the only other spy who had joined Caleb in giving that good report to Moses and encouraging the people to take the land. Now, we ought to notice that phrase in verse 8, where Caleb said, I wholly followed the Lord my God. The imagery there is literally following, walking behind someone. That really summed up how Caleb had lived his life. He was an Israelite who was faithful to follow the Lord. He believed in the Lord, in Yahweh. He trusted him to keep his promises to Israel. And then he demonstrated his faith and trust by obeying the Lord's commands without compromise. He didn't turn away from trusting the Lord. He didn't turn away from obeying his commands, even when it was difficult and unpopular to do so. Remember, the nation of Israel wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for the report they give. He wholly followed the Lord. Next, verse 9. Caleb reminded Joshua, who again had firsthand knowledge of these events, of what Moses had promised to do for Caleb because of the fact that Caleb had wholly followed the Lord. And notice that phrase, wholly followed the Lord, is used for a second time in this verse 9. He said, And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which you and which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord. Now, when you look back into the Pentateuch and you look at this event that happened with the 12 spies, you see the Lord swearing to do what Caleb mentions here. So Moses tells the story of it, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 and 36. He says, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has Holy followed the Lord. There it is again. Indeed, Caleb's words, do you hear? They're really echoing that text from Deuteronomy chapter 1, which is the Lord swearing to allow Caleb to inherit the land. But apparently, Moses swore his own oath to uphold God's oath to Caleb. And that's what Caleb was reminding Joshua of here in verse 9 of our text, when he says, and Moses swore on that day. He wanted Joshua to remember that both the Lord and also apparently Moses had sworn to do this for him because he was about to ask Joshua now to make good on that oath, to bring it to fulfillment. 
And so we see that he asked Joshua to give him a specific portion of land as an inheritance in Canaan. Now, before articulating that request, you see that Caleb offers another reason why Joshua should give him this portion of land that he was going to ask for. And you see it there in verses 10 and 11. Look there again. It says, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Now remember, none of the adult Israelites who had come out of Egypt at the Exodus were still alive. They'd all died in the wilderness during that 40-year wilderness wandering. All, that is, except Caleb and Joshua. So if my calculations are correct, that would make them the two oldest people in Israel at the time that Caleb spoke these words that are recorded here in Joshua 14. So Caleb said he was 85 years old at the time. Now, it is true that people did live a little bit longer in that day. Joshua, for instance, died at the age of 110. Moses died at the age of 120. Caleb says, though, that he's 85 years old, and and that's still pretty old. But the land that Caleb was about to ask Joshua for still needed to be conquered. So the question, you see, was that was going to be raised, was given Caleb's age, was he up for the task? And what does Caleb say? He says, absolutely. In fact, he says that he was as strong at 85 as he had been when he was a spy at age 40. Indeed, if Caleb is really providing an accurate self-assessment, then the undiminished strength that he had seems to indicate a supernatural blessing from God. In other words, God may have supernaturally preserved Caleb's physical strength through the wilderness wandering period. Why? Because Caleb had not merited this particular judgment. He had wholly followed the Lord while the rest of Israel had rebelled. And so God here had blessed Caleb with the ability to enjoy his inheritance in the promised land in the same way that he would have if he would have entered it 40 years earlier. And because of this, Caleb was ready to take the portion of land that he was about to ask for from Joshua. Now, finally, Caleb gets to his request in verse 12. And there he says to Joshua, So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. What a remarkable request this is. Caleb had already done so much for Israel. He was, in a sense, alongside Joshua, the grand old man of the nation. Only he and Joshua were left from the Exodus generation. And he had suffered through the 40-year wilderness wandering 
even though he had not rebelled against God like the rest of Israel. And he had spent the last five years fighting in the conquest of Canaan. You see, surely he, of all people, deserved to receive a portion in the land that had already been conquered by the Israelites, where he could just live out the rest of his days in peace. But no, that's not what Caleb wanted. Instead, he wanted Joshua to give him a portion in the land of Canaan that was not only not conquered yet, but was still inhabited by the greatest warriors left in Canaan. He asked for that hill country, which was inhabited by the remaining Anakim in their great fortified cities. Now, we've talked a little bit about the Anakim already in the book of Joshua. They were a lineage of people who actually traced back to the Nephilim, those mysterious offspring of those unholy unions back in Genesis chapter 6. They were known for their great size and for being mighty warriors. Later on, these are the ones that the Bible describes as giants. The the most famous of them being Goliath of Gath. Anak was a particularly noteworthy member of this strange and mysterious people mentioned in the Bible. And his descendants are called Anakim. So Anak and his descendants are Anakim. They lived in the land of Canaan, and they particularly seemed to be living among the Philistines, and they were always fighting against Israel. They really came to embody the most fierce and formidable members of the inhabitants of Canaan who persisted in defying Israelite rule. The Bible for instance, tells us explicitly of the many times that David and his mighty men defeated one of these fierce warriors. And yet, Caleb specifically asked Joshua to give him the portion of land where the Anakim lived for his inheritance. In fact, we learn in verses 13 through 15 that the territory Caleb requested from Joshua was the region surrounding Hebron, formerly known as Kariath Arba. And the author tells us, by the way, Kariath Arba means city of Arba. And the author tells us that he, that's Arba, was the greatest man among the Anakim. In other words, Caleb had chosen not only the land where the Anakim lived, but the region containing what must have been a sort of historic capital of the Anakim, the epicenter of their activity. It seems he chose the territory specifically for that reason. It wasn't like he surveyed the land and said, yeah, I really want this land. It was that he wanted to be the one to drive out these great warriors from the land that God had promised to give them. Now, why would he do that? Well, the answer, I think, is not just that Caleb was a man who lusted for glory in battle, nor was it even simply that he was just a particularly courageous man. The answer, instead, is traced back to the matter of the 12 spies, back in Numbers 13 and 14. In those chapters, we see that it was these very Anakim, these great 
and large warriors in their fortified cities. That was one of the things that the ten spies had cited as a reason why Israel would never be able to take the land. In fact, we read their words to the people in Numbers 13.33. And there we saw the Nephilim, the son of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Caleb and Joshua had tried to tell the people at that time, that didn't matter. God is able to give you the land just as he had promised. But while Caleb had trusted that the Lord was going to do this and was ready to obey, the Israelites were unbelieving. They rebelled against the Lord. And that resulted in the 40-year wilderness wandering. So now, do you see what's happening? Caleb is specifically requesting the epicenter of the Anakim territory to be allotted to him as an inheritance so that he could prove what the Israelites had denied so long ago, that the mighty Anakim would not hinder the Lord from fulfilling his promise to give them the land. With the Lord's help, he would prove that God was powerful and faithful enough to drive them out of their ancient capital, and to take their land for the tribe of Judah. So it says in verse 12, It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Nothing is too hard for the Lord in Caleb's mind. Indeed, we see from verse 13 that Joshua granted Caleb's request and that Caleb successfully took the land. It became his inheritance. In fact, the book of Judges, the next book in the Bible, actually is more explicit. It says in Judges 1.20, And Hebron was given to Caleb, and as Moses said, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak. And you see, the reason the author included this story right here at the beginning, before he divides up the land between the people, is he's citing this example of Caleb, and he's putting it before his Israelite readers before they receive their inheritance. And he's saying, look at Caleb. This is what you need to do if you're going to keep and enjoy this inheritance that God is giving you. In fact, it's mentioned for the third time in verse 14. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Did the Israelites reading this chapter, did they live in the land of Canaan? Were they living in a time of peace? Then how could they continue enjoying peace in the land that God had given them? Or perhaps the Israelites reading this chapter, their peace had been disrupted by the covenant curses of famine and pestilence and war because of their sin. How could they regain the blessings which they had lost? Or maybe the Israelites reading this chapter had been removed from the land into exile. What did they have to do to recover the inheritance that they had lost? Caleb shows the way. They needed to turn away from their unbelief and their rebellion against God and an endeavor to wholly follow the Lord. Like Caleb, 
trusting in the Lord to keep his promises, showing that trust by obeying the Lord's commands. For such an Israel, who like Caleb, wholly follow the Lord, will be like the psalmist described in Psalm 1, like trees planted by streams of water, yielding their fruits in their season. In all they do, they prosper. Well, that's Joshua 14, looking at it a little bit more in depth. But let's just now turn to consider what does this mean for us? Well, obviously, the main thrust of this chapter, aside from that little introduction at the beginning, is the story of Caleb requesting Hebron, the land of the Anakim, as his portion in Canaan. And I've suggested that the author is intentionally putting this story there to provide for his Israelite readers an example to follow so that they would fully enjoy this inheritance that God had given them. And it was by wholly following the Lord, like Caleb, that the Israelites would experience peace and prosperity from the Lord in the promised land. But we have to be careful how we apply this to ourselves. You see, the message of Joshua 14, as I've just stated it, it makes sense under the Old Covenant because under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel had been told very clearly, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, if you obey the Lord's commands, you'll experience these covenant blessings in the land of Canaan. If you break these commands, you would experience the covenant curses in the land and eventually be kicked out of the land into exile. Now that was actually bad news for Israel because the old covenant didn't provide certain things that they needed. It didn't provide them with forgiveness for their disobedience or a heart to obey God. Now there were some like Caleb who were believers. They had been given those blessings But most in Israel didn't receive them. As was so often said of them, they were a stubborn and rebellious people, by and large. And this is why so many of them were more like the ten spies than the two spies, right? More like Ahab than Elijah. This is why they kept breaking God's commands until he eventually kicked them out of the land into exile. So in one sense... As we look at Caleb's example, which the author is putting forth and commending to the nation of Israel, this is how you will enjoy your inheritance, by wholly following the Lord like Caleb. It's a reminder of what Israel needed but didn't have. And it points us, as believers in Jesus Christ, to what God has now gloriously provided to us as sinners in the new covenant through Jesus Christ, namely complete forgiveness of all of our sin and disobedience and a new obedient heart. You remember those old promises articulated in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. In a sense, you see, Because Jesus Christ wholly followed the Lord and won our redemption, now every member of the new covenant is sort of like Caleb, a forgiven and regenerate believer who is willing and able by the Holy Spirit to obey God's commands. How is that possible? Well, again, because Jesus 
the Messiah, the eternal divine Son of God, the God-man, He has come and He has wholly followed the Lord. Far better than Caleb. He offered Himself up unto death as a perfect sacrifice for our sins and then has risen again so that we might share in His life by the Spirit. Think of Paul's words concerning us as Christians. In Romans 6, 4, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So for us, believer, as we look at Caleb's example, it should serve us as a reminder of the saving blessings which were not given to everyone under the old covenant, but have now become ours under the new covenant through Jesus Christ. He has made us, in a sense, all like Caleb's, that we might all enjoy the blessings of the inheritance that God has given to us forever. And if you're here and you're still dead in your trespasses and your sins, then hear the good news of Jesus Christ this morning. It's not beyond hope that you too can become like this man, Caleb, a man or woman who wholly follows the Lord. But you need more than just a new set of beliefs or some tips for self-improvement or to just become a bit more religious. You need to be forgiven of all of your sins through the death of Christ and you need to be made new in your heart by His Holy Spirit. Jesus famously said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You need a new birth. But Jesus offers these blessings of salvation to you as a free gift, despite your guilty and corrupt state, as he famously said later on in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. So just believe and trust in Jesus to save you and you will be forgiven and receive eternal life with him as a gift of grace. And I hope you will do that this morning if you haven't already. Don't wait another moment. And yet, with all that being said, I want to come back around and say that, well, as believers who have been forgiven, who have been regenerated in our hearts and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, well, now Caleb's life does indeed provide us with an example to follow. May it be said of us, as it was of Caleb, that we wholly followed the Lord our God. Such a life honors him and leads to the enjoyment of his blessings. And what does it mean to wholly follow the Lord like Caleb? Well, it begins, of course, with that faith that Caleb had. He believed in God. He believed God's promises. And that trust that he showed, he trusted God to do what he had said. And then he showed his faith and he showed his trust in God by the way he lived his life. He showed his faith by his acts of obedience. Even though it was difficult, even though it was unpopular to do so, he kept believing and trusting in God and showing it by obedience. And he persevered in this throughout his life. I mean, 
We saw him at age 40 in Numbers 13 and 14, and now we see him at age 85, toward the end of his life, and he's doing the same thing. May the same be true of us believers. By God's grace, may our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen us by the power of his indwelling spirit to believe in him, to trust in him, to keep his promises, and to persevere in faith and trust all the way to the end of our life, no matter how difficult and unpopular it might be to do so. And may the Spirit of God strengthen us to manifest that faith in our lives by wholly following the Lord. May we not just say we believe, but also show it by having the courage to do what he commands. Maybe that's in your workplace, in your marriage, in your church life, in your personal life. You know, Jesus has told us in the Sermon on the Mount, or in the Olivet Discourse, that difficult times are going to come. He even said that many will fall away, their love will grow cold under the pressure of those times. But let us pray that God will keep us wholly following him. We can't do it on our own, but the Lord is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before himself on that day. So that when all is said and done, we're going to give glory to the Lord, even for our own faith and obedience. May it be that we would be like Caleb through the Spirit in Christ, men and women, children who wholly follow the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage, the example of Caleb, which is inspiring to us, not because what we're seeing is just Caleb in his own strength, but Caleb as a believer, a man whose heart had been changed. And we thank you that you've done that by your grace in our life, washing away all of our sins, cleansing us from the guilt and shame, giving us new hearts, hearts of obedience, hearts of faith. And thank you, Lord. We pray that you would make us men and women who belong to Jesus Christ, who trust in him and show it by wholly following him. We pray it in his name. Amen.